Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. Hey, everybody. How's life out there? So I'm going to start this week's podcast with a recipe. Here it is. You ready? All right. It's pretty easy. Eight squares of good quality dark white or milk chocolate. That sounds okay. good already. All right. Starting good. Starting off. And 30 dry roasted cicadas. Okay. Now we're done. Roast cicadas for 15 minutes at 225. Melt chocolate in a double boiler over low heat. Dip insects in chocolate. Place on wax paper and refrigerate until hardened. That sounds easy enough. (laughs) And then deliver them to somebody you don't like. (laughs) But low in in fat, high in protein. Do you tell your friends that it's cicadas before you offer them or do you just... I think it's fairly obvious by the shape and size. Perhaps. You know, but it makes me want to go and just make chocolate cicadas, like chocolates in the shape of cicadas that don't actually have any crunch yeah. on the inside. But this is just one of many recipes that Lisa Daffy forwarded to me this morning. Um, we also have crispy wok toss cicadas, uh, sick and delicious, delicious pizza, in which you- Sick and delicious. Sick and delicious. Um, e- emergence cookies. I think that's a really good one. I think it's cicadelicious. Hey, uh, delicious. Hey, delicious. I see delicious. what you did there. Hmm. I think that's what they're well, going for. I don't know. I think emergence cookies is a really, a really cool name too. Because basically, emergence cookies. that's what we're looking at. So, in case you haven't figured out what the topic is today, um, we're talking cicadas, or as um, some of us from the Midwest or Western New York used to refer to them as locusts. Locusts. That was always. Yeah. No, 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 no. Completely different animal. No, yeah, I, know, I know, but when you but, grow up in the Midwest, that's what you call them. They've been and called she's, locusts. She's right, Lisa. Growing up in Pittsburgh, we called them locusts too, and I—that's just because uh, we didn't know any better. And Rochester, really, it's pretty common. Yeah, yeah, that's what they call them. Because you, because you probably had locusts also. Yes, my understanding. Those are grasshoppers, aren't they? Locusts. Are yeah, locusts look more like grasshoppers, and locusts will destroy vegetation. Like, I mean, they in huge hordes, they can completely wipe out big tracks of vegetation where cicadas they're just basically on a rum springer they're not really interested in eating anything they're just partying i suspect that we call them locusts in the midwest because it just felt like a plague because so many yeah so yeah. we're talking mm-hmm. of course about brood 10 because i'm sure all of you knew that brood 10 is our periodic cicada and um and they come out this batch comes out i believe every 17 years so this is the year and sitting in with us today at the controls is bill sutton hey bill Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And also with us today is Brendan J. O'Reilly. Hey, Brendan. How are you? Hi, I'm Brendan. I'm the features editor. And Joe Shaw's here in his his Pittsburgh white t-shirt, little v-neck. (laughs) (laughs) And dress down uh, post-sessions event. Hi, Joe Shaw, executive editor of the Express News Group. Homage to Brood 10 in the homeland, I think. 
can you roll a pack of smokes up in that? In your, in your I could. I could. And my name is Annette Hinkle, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And sitting in with us today is Lisa Daffy. And Lisa wrote a story about the cicadas that appeared in this week's edition of the papers. Hey, Lisa, how are you? Hi, Annette. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. This is uh, good to be able to talk to you. The, the big question, I guess, and Lisa, I don't know if you know of anything about this, what we might be looking at in terms of seeing these little guys and gals here um, this far east on the east end of Long Island. I believe that they talked about them kind of emerging further west, but I wasn't sure what our history is of seeing cicadas east of the Shinnecock Canal. We may have a few. According to Dan Gilrain, who I spoke with for the article, who's with the um, Cornell Cooperative Extension, he's an entomologist there, he said we have not seen too many of them on the east end in the, in the last time that this brood emerged. So we're probably not going to see too many this time. He said uh, Connecticut State Park had a good um, had a good showing of them in East Setauket. The problem is like because you know as the more land you clear, the less trees there are for them to be living off the sap of underground. So it you know kind of as as things change and a region develops, you you change the how friendly the region is for them to to survive and to thrive. So he said, you know, we're more likely to see annual cicadas here, which you can kind of, the main difference between them and the periodicals is they don't have the red eyes, which is always a nice feature of if they're not horrifying enough because they have a three inch wingspan and they're clumsy flyers. So they tend to fly into you. They also have bright red eyes. Um, but the annual ones have green eyes usually. And those he said, you're more likely to see, although we will have a few of the, um, the periodical ones. And they tend to prefer wooded areas. Is that correct? Right. The nymphs live underground for 17 years with the, with the 17 year periodicals, and they um, they grow and they molt. They shed their exoskeleton, and they look sort of like something like out of Alien. They're kind of creepy and weird looking, and they suck tree sap for 17 years. And then in the 17th spring, they um, they wait till the soil temperature is 64 degrees, and they burrow their way to the surface and go up the nearest vertical surface, which is usually the tree that they've been feeding on, and shed their exoskeleton one last time and kind of fluff out their wings and off they go. We used to pick them off the trees and then we would sneak up on adults and kind of hang them on the adults' clothing so that they could, so they could find them later. That was always fun. <laughs> I, I remember as a kid, I don't know about you guys, but I remember, well, what would it have been now? It would have been at least two cycles ago, right? maybe three. Oh my mm -hmm. Lord. I'm so, I'm so old. Um, I, I remember picking up and, and, and collecting the little exoskeletons they leave behind, which mm -hmm. are, as you say, terrifying looking. And, um, at first it was, and, and of course, when I was a kid, I thought those were the bugs at first because they are fully formed and they look like the bugs, but mm -hmm. then you find out they're just an empty shell and, they're kind of cool. And uh, we used to go around and collect them up and bring them together. I don't remember what we did with them. We used to blow things up with firecrackers, but I don't think we did it with those because they're a little too, uh, oh, that would be a little overkill. I think they weren't that strong. So, so I have two primatic experiences with them, both cool. occurring in the same year, probably brood 10. I've come to know them well. Um, I was, I think it's 12, 11 or 12. And um, I lived near Cincinnati when I was growing up. And Cincinnati would get inundated with them. And I just remember it happened that they came out the exact same week that I went off to Girl Scout camp. Oh. And I just remember <laughs> brushing my teeth in the outdoor sink. And um, it was just littered with dead, decaying locusts. 
And sitting on around the campfire, I just remember shells like falling on me. It was really disgusting. And and within a week or two, we went down to visit a friend of mine who lives in Cincinnati. They had a pool in their backyard. I wouldn't come out of the house. I was so terrified of the cicadas. And finally, after about an hour, um, my friend's mother coaxed me out of the house because it was a really quick run from the from the, from the back porch to the pool. And once I'm in the pool, I'm okay. So I go into the pool, and my friend's evil big brother caught a cicada and he stuck it on my head um, in the pool. And of course, you know, I immediately went underwater and the thing did not let go. It like grabbed on. I remember, I still remember its feeling of its feet in my scalp and it started noise, but underwater. Oh. I mean, that's not uh, hard. Ooh, that's kind of sad. However, this is the point where I feel like we have to underscore, Lisa, cicada, cicadas will not hurt you, right? No, apparently their feet are a little bit kind of grippy, which sounds like what you experienced. The poor thing was probably scared to death and you know, it was holding on for dear life too. The cicada was saying, I can't get this human off my feet. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, they don't bite. They have no stinger. They have no teeth. They are harmless. They are. They don't eat anything above ground. And that's, you know, why, and so I looked at a couple of pest control websites and they're all like, the cicadas are coming. Call us now to come spray your property. And there is no, you do not want to spray for these because you're going to kill everything else that we really don't want to kill. The bees, the butterflies, the hummingbirds. And they're not going to harm anything. They're just annoying. They will pee on you if they happen to be up in a tree and you walk underneath. Awesome. So that is, you know, another thing to consider if you're in a cicada-heavy area. They're also a huge food source for the animals, right? They're a huge food source, yeah. And, you know, um, Annette, you and I were talking before about the thing with the birds, the predator cycling thing. And so I was looking into that a little bit. And they said they've been trying to figure out for, like, since the 1600s, why cicadas have these these specific periods in which they emerge. and the closest they've been able to come to an explanation is they think it has something to do with me, with managing the predators of them by by emerging in these huge numbers. Like so, there's like specific types of birds, species of birds that feed on them, and I mean everything feeds them. They say dogs will eat them until they just you know gag themselves. They're just apparently they're very tasty, so you might want to take another look at the recipes. But um, they will. So like the birds will will gorge themselves on the cicadas. They'll they'll reproduce a lot. It's a healthy environment. It also feeds the their decaying remains, also feed the plants. It's a really big boon to the environment. So you get these bird populations that will then peak like the year after the cicadas emerge. And then over the next 13 or 17 years, depending on where your particular brood is, if it's a 17 or 13 year um, brood, the bird population will decline and its lowest point will be the year that they emerge again. And so there's enough cicadas then that enough of them survive to breed and make the next generation without them all being wiped out. Whereas if they emerged two years later, there'd still be so many birds that they wouldn't have a chance of enough of them surviving to replace themselves. Lisa, the, the, I actually just read uh, something very similar to that. Uh, I was researching masting or mast seeding which is when the oak trees and other species of trees do this. But you, you know, every few years, oak trees will just make an abundance of acorns, like a ridiculous amount of acorns. Yeah. And, you know, people are shoveling them out of their driveways. And it's the same exact principle that you bring up, which is that when they have a mast year, they have more acorns than the predators could possibly eat, which means there's acorns left for uh, the oaks to reproduce. The next year, they have average or less than average production of acorns. And now those predator populations plummet. 
And when I say predator, you know, that could be mice, that could be squirrels, that could be deer, mm -hmm. that could be the acorn weevil, which is an insect that could actually build up its population enough that weevils could take out 90% of the acorns on one tree. If acorns weren't wow. masting to control this, what would happen is the mice, the squirrel, the deer, all of those populations will build up to the point where they will eat every acorn and we won't have any more oak trees because they're not seeding anymore. So the masting of oak trees seems even odder than the cicadas because somehow all the oak trees in a neighborhood or in a region, or at least all the white oaks will say, all right, we're gonna mast this year. How they're telling each other to do this, I don't know, but they decide they're gonna mast that year. Uh, and then on another year, all the red oaks, they will then all mast together. Even if they're different varieties or different species, they're still in the red oak group and they just know that they're gonna to work together and this is gonna be their year. Not in tandem with the white oaks, but in tandem with the red oaks. Fascinating, it's almost like the periodical cicadas. It's like that, that group kind of sticks together. That's really fascinating, Brendan. I, I'd never heard that. That makes, it makes sense though. A whole natural cycle like that. I mean, it's like horseshoe crabs, right? They, they lay so many eggs because so many of the, the crabs will be, uh, what's the word, predated? Predated. Predated, yeah, predated along the way. So it's, it's all, it's fascinating stuff. No question. So are we going to eat cicadas for real at some point? Is people do that, right? Yeah, I mean, I, that, that's a thing. People do that. You can also, you can also kebab them, which I did not see in, uh, in those recipes, but according to um, Mr. Mr. Gilrain that I spoke to, they can also be kebabbed. I read somewhere so, that, you know, you could try that on your grill. They're called the shrimp of the land. Yeah, and if you have seafood allergies, you can't just, you know, in case anybody is planning to eat them, if you have a seafood allergy, shellfish allergy, you should not eat cicadas because it's going to trigger the same kind of allergic reaction. <laughs> isn't, isn't that fascinating? So, but if you have alpha-gal, it's all free game. Is, and they're also gluten-free. Right. So uh, they, I, I read various <laughs> descriptions of what they taste like, and the variety of descriptions I read make me think that I don't think I'd like them even though the things they described are things I like. Um, if something is described as tasting somewhere between asparagus and almonds, those two things are not in the same universe in my book. Um, they, they don't belong together. Yeah. My, my favorite description is Bon Appetit says cicadas are similar to soft shell crab, but with subtle overtones of boiled peanuts, the kind only a backroads gas station can really do right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, you know, that'll make me never want to try that. Wow. I would eat a cicada before I would eat a boiled peanut, though. I hate boiled peanuts. <laughs> oh, yeah, I yeah, hate that's... boiled peanuts. Is this oh. boiled or any peanuts? No, boiled. Boiled. Those are what you buy up on the side of the road, like down south, right? Yeah. I've, I've, back back I've, road gas stations. Oh, those are so gross. I'm not sure. I've tried one of those. I have to say, you dip anything in chocolate, I could probably eat it, though. Although I'm trying to describe, I'm, I'm trying to, to figure out how you would eat. So you'd eat the whole cicada, wings and exoskeleton and... Chocolatey on the outside, crunchy that's, on the inside. Yeah, that's what it sounds like from everything I've looked at. Yeah, the whole thing is edible, I guess. I don't know. Ugh. You try it and let me know how it, how it tastes.
know, insects are one of the most nutrient dense foods that there are. There's a reason why so many, you know, so many animals, so much wildlife, so much of the food chain is dependent on insects. And the fact that humans found this distaste for insects is probably something that's affecting our health in a negative way that we don't really want to look into because we're never going to convince everybody to start eating insects again. I've actually read about this. And I think that I've, I've read that if you, if you offer a, a child a food item, like prior to the age of three, they will not develop an aversion to it. They will eat it. So insects. And there's a lot it. of cultures, I think, that still do eat insects, right? Yeah. I have, I have a friend who was in the Peace Corps in Malawi and there was the fly invasion and the dead flies all over her front um, front walk and her neighbors asked if they might scoop the flies up and have them for dinner, um, mm-hmm. figuring that the, that the American girls would not be eating the flies on their property. So they happily came over and, and scooped all those flies up. Mm-hmm. I find it sort of intriguing that we are disgusted by the idea of eating cicada, but a lobster on the other <laughs> hand, which is really the same thing just seven times as big. Yeah, that that's that's perfectly good. And it wasn't until a hundred years ago that lobsters were a delicacy. Lobsters used to be what they ma- made the servants eat. Oh God. Well, you know, maybe if as Fox News says we get limited to four hamburgers a year, maybe bugs will start to look better. I don't know. I think it's the wings. The, the wings gross me out. Wings. Wings. Yeah. Big yeah. How do you feel about chicken, Annette? <laughs> Giant cicada. Turkey. I will be honest, like I, I tend, I'm, I'm leaning more and more vegetarian these days. I don't eat a lot of meat. Yeah, I don't know, the wings, I think it'd be the giant red eyes more than the wings that would bother me, but anyway. If we could get away from eating the cicadas for a sec, as fascinating as that is, I hate to change the subject as much as everybody's enjoying imagining eating a fresh cicada. Um, so 2004 was the last brood X emergence. And I'm thinking, well, what was I doing in April and May of 2004? I was actually getting ready to graduate high school. And I could tell you, I don't remember anybody talking about cicadas back then, probably because I was a bit too busy. But had there been cicadas, you know, all over our property in Patchogue, I would have remembered that. And I do not remember that. I don't remember anybody on Long Island having a cicada problem. So if the cicada weren't flying around then, I imagine they're not underground now, 17 years later. And if it affects Long Island at all, it's going to be parts very far from the East End. Well, they definitely move. I think every time they come out, they expand their range a bit. That's what I recall. So that's why I was wondering. I'm not, I wasn't sure what kind of range they had last time around. To to Lisa's point earlier though, too, if they've lived underground as nymphs for 17 years, think about how much of the ground has been disturbed over the last 17 years on the East End. <laughs> There's a lot of dirt that's been turned over for a variety of reasons. So, Well, and, and as, as all the, the trees have been removed, I mean, the, the nymphs feed on, on the, tree, the tree roots, correct? So the nymphs have, have died as the land has developed, those nymphs have died underground. There's also a climate change angle to this where there are maybe not entire broods emerging early, but parts of the broods will emerge in great numbers, maybe four or five years earlier than expected. And the thought is that because the world is getting warmer, the growing season for the trees that the insects living underground eat is longer. So they're filling up on on tree root matter, whatever it is they're eating underground there, uh, much quicker than they normally would. So they're reaching maturity faster. 
And when they do emerge earlier like that, if there's enough numbers of them, they could actually create a brand new brood. So then we would have, you know, maybe a brood every five years, even though each of them is on a 17 year cycle, uh, because they're growing to maturity faster, because as we warm the planet, the trees grow more and the trees feed the cicadas faster. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Do the cicadas do any damage to the trees uh, in, in any way, like either as nymphs or as adults? Um, no, not really. I mean, they're not taking enough of the sap as nymphs to really damage a tree. The damage that they do, if you have, the females will lay their eggs in a thin twig, on thin twigs of trees. So they can damage like a few branches, a few small branches, but really unless you're talking about it like an orchard with a lot of very young trees, it's, it's not gonna be an issue. It's, you know, they said it kind of also serves to sort of do naturally pruning of the trees. It kind of prunes off the weak, the weak branches. And that's, um, that's really the only damage they do. Cause like I said, they don't eat anything. They don't, they're not stinging. They're not, they're not doing any harm. So yeah, we should, we should not rush out to hire people to spray our properties to kill the cicadas. Oh dear God. No, please, please. Yeah, that's that's really alarming to me that 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 there's there's even a consideration to do that. This is part of the part of the natural cycle. So when do we think that they should be emerging? Do we have a, a, a kind of a late May? Um, when the it kind of depends on the the soil temperature. He said I think eight inches below ground has to stabilize at like sixty four degrees, and that's when they emerge. So that really depends on on what the weather's doing, and you know this our weather's been so crazy this year where it's you know, it's 70 and then it's 34 and then it's, you know, but he said it kind of figure late May is, is probably what we're looking at. So great. They're coming out with everybody. That's else. right. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Memorial Day cicadas. Yep. You know, Joe, going back to what you were saying about spraying and how alarming that is. Yes, we don't need to spray for cicadas because they're harmless, but we're often spraying for things that are harmless or we're spraying for a couple things that are harmful and destroying everything else in the process. And, you know, I do want to throw this to Lisa in a second because she is our accidental beekeeper columnist and she could tell you what it does to our bees. But broadly, when you go out there and you kill everything, you're not just killing bad bugs, you're killing neutral bugs and you're killing good bugs. And you know what keeps the populations of bad bugs under control? Good bugs. When you take away the bugs that eat the bad bugs, then you just let the population of bad, bu uh, bad bugs run wild. You know, if you spray and you've killed all the, the ladybugs, well, guess what? Now the aphids mm -hmm. are going to destroy your garden because there's no predators to come eat the aphids. Just don't spray. You just, it's not necessary. There's so many better ways to control, you know, ticks and mosquitoes in your yard that don't involve just wholesale killing everything on your property. Yeah. And, you know, and there, are, and there are some treatments that, that need to be done. Like I, you know, I have a friend who um, they spray their fruit trees with copper 
like a copper sulfate, I think it is. But you know, they spray it in the evening when you know when the the pollinators are are not active. You know, they spray after dark, and that way it settles. It's not a poison. It's just you know, and then by the you know by the time the pollinators are up and at it again the next morning, the spray has dried. It's not doing any harm. But yeah, I mean that was one of the that was actually what drew me to doing this story was I started to see, you know, this thing about the cicadas are coming and then ads for, you know, the cicadas are coming, let us come spray your yard. And I was like, oh, God, no, you're going to kill all my bees. Um, there's just, there's no need for it. And like Brendan was saying, you you don't, you know, we've been studying cicadas for 350 years. We still don't really understand why their life cycle is what it is. So for us to assume that it's fine to go out and get, you know, Roundup or whatever and just spray everything, well, Roundup is for weeds, but, you know, for bug killers, and we don't, really know what the long-term effects of these things are um you know some of the bug sprays the neonicotinoids they cause confusion they're causing bees to lose their way they can't find their way back to the hive you know you end up with, with what they call colony collapse disorder where the bees just basically disappear and they and they think a lot of that is probably due to some of these pesticides and the the effects they have on the bees where they lose their ability to navigate it's kind of like their gps just goes off and so they can't get home. They die. The hive dies because there's nobody bringing in food. And, you know, we, again, lose more bees. I mean, it is not unusual for a beekeeper to lose 60 to 75 percent of their of their colonies every year. Um, it's, you know, it, it's a lot. I feel like there's a there's an echo here in the story we had this week about the bunker that are dying off, um, that they're at the base of the food chain in the aquatic setting and um, they're dying off. Apparently uh, what we're seeing now is that it's probably some type of bacterial infection that's killing them. But the, the, the point being that has a ripple effect up the food chain. And I'd say it's probably exactly the same with cicadas. They are such an important food source for so many different animals. Um, if you take action to damage that process, you're going to have, and it's going to ripple effect up to birds and every every other and, animal that that counts on that as a food source. And we don't even really know what the, you know, we don't really know where it stops, you know, and that's and that's the dangerous part is we don't always know what we're doing, um, you know, what the long term effects of that are going to be. So we should welcome the cicadas. We should welcome the cicadas. Like I said, they're just here to have fun. They, they, you know, there's like, it's like a, a few weeks where they hatch, they mate, the males die immediately after mating, the females live a few more days to lay their eggs, and then they die, their carcasses feed everything, their exoskeletons feed everything, um, you know, they're, they're purely beneficial to the environment. So, so they're coming out just to mate and have fun? Yeah, it's, 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 it's basically an insect rum springer is what it is, yeah. Shortly after Memorial Day, it's not like we're not unfamiliar with that with that pattern of behavior. And then we can cook them up on the party. This will be fun. exactly yeah. White meat or dark meat? <laughs> How many legs are there? Are there a lot of drumsticks? <laughs> Six. Yeah. So you're getting like you know three times as many legs as you do on a chicken. So yeah, exactly. less meat, but yeah. I don't think I could do it. You're gonna need a lot of chocolate or or hot sauce. One one of the two. <laughs> Put anything in hot sauce, you, you can eat it. Yeah. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, K 
Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.